The world we live in is an amazing one, full of passion, wonderment, and of course, fine wine. This is the story of one man's journey to fully understand and appreciate that world. So kick the tires and light the fires. It's time to ride between the wines. It's Burgundian in style. Just a whisper of cherry. Very nice legs. This is so perfectly balanced. Such an old world style. Is this laced with tobacco? A total fruit bomb. I say, say, Ponzi! <laughs> Episode 16, What Up? Mike Weinguy here, and this week I'm hanging with Erica Taylor from CoBrand. Not only is Erica a crazy knowledgeable and fantastic person, but she represents some of the best wineries out there. On this episode, we mostly discuss her old world wineries, and of course, you'll have to wait and see our mutual love. So if you're ready, let's ride. And we are in the car with Erica Taylor from CoBrand. Say what up. What up? Beautiful. All right. Uh, if you don't know, CoBrand uh, has got a whole slew of wines and different regions and amazing wineries to talk about. So we're going to not hit the entire portfolio today, but I want to talk about a couple. But maybe before we get started, you can just tell me a little bit about CoBrand. Yes, so um, Co-Brand, my company was founded in 1944 by a gentleman named Rudy Kopf, and uh, he was actually the wine buyer for Macy's, which I think is oh, really see. interesting to think that Macy's sold wine at one point. Um, and so it was originally called Kopf Brands, which got shortened to Co-Brand, and uh, yeah, that's how the company was started. And uh, I swear my mom has told me stories about how in the basement of Macy's there used to be a big wine thing. It seems like legit. she's from Boston, which is where I think Macy's yeah. is New Englandy. Yeah, and New That's interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, very cool. Um, and one of the first wines that we imported was Louis Jadot. Okay. And uh, we've imported them for a number of years. And then in 1986, our company purchased Louis Jadot. Awesome. Well, then. Let's start with Louis Jadot then. Let's, that sounds like a great segue into some of the amazing French wines you have. Yes. What would you like to know? It's <laughs> <laughs> a great question. So, so who is Louis Jadot? So, who was the first Louis Jadot, so I guess? Louis Jadot was uh, a gentleman from Belgium and uh, back in the, the 1800s and he moved to France, purchased the first, his first property in 1826 or 29. I probably should get this. Yeah. It's a long time ago. But I think it's a three-year difference. I think. Yeah, I think we're good. I think <laughs> give or take. Was it in Plus Burgundy? Or minus. Yeah, and it was in Bone actually. Okay. And that vineyard um, is our famed uh, Clodeur Sewell vineyard, and uh, it was the first, the first property that was acquired by Louis Jadot. Um, Louis Jadot Winery became uh, a thing in, in 1859, and uh, he was a negociant, but also, like I said, uh, acquiring vineyards too along the process. Is that now? So I've been to the Louis Jadot Winery in Bone. Is that yeah. still in the same? So where the winery is now is just outside of this, the town of Bone. Uh -huh. The original winery was in uh, the city center. So not that far away, just Perfect. A, a, a couple kilometers. Got it. Cool, cool, cool. Um, <laughs> this is fun. Uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, so um, Maison Louis Jadot has, I guess, um, wines from vineyards north to south. Yes. All over Burgundy. All over. Is, uh, is Louis Jadot the biggest uh, Burgundy producer? So they're actually, uh, Louis Jadot is actually the largest landholder of Premier and Grand Cru vineyards in Burgundy. Um, they own about 350 acres, which is uh, a lot. Huge in Burgundy, yeah, right? Very yeah, very huge in Burgundy. And uh, always on the lookout for acquiring new, new vineyards. Um, in 2017, they made the uh, most recent acquisition, which was a producer named Pierre Brunet, which brought about um, 22 hectares of, of vineyards into the portfolio so we're always growing and really trying to expand the um, domain portion of the winery. 
So what I think is very interesting is that in addition to all of the actual holdings, um, so I feel like there is a, uh, a mindset out there that uh, estate grapes versus uh, purchase grapes, one reason or another, it's very negative towards the purchase grapes, although I don't necessarily think that that needs to be the case. And Louis Jadot was actually the first winery where I was talking to somebody and they, they gave me a very convincing argument. Um, do you have any thoughts on that or how? Yeah, so um, the negotiant model uh, existed in Burgundy because it kind of needed to, in a sense, right. because there are so many uh, owners of, uh, and a lot of times very small parcels of uh, vineyards that can't really, it's not economically viable for them to make their own wine. So that's where the role of the negociant came in. They could buy the fruit, produce a wine for these growers. Um, one thing that Louis Jadot does that's really, I think, sets them apart is that they uh, they pay cash and they pay upfront. So they've got, uh, even though you know they're not 100% domain, they have some really legit contracts with these growers, and their growers know that they're going to get paid. They're going to get paid very fairly, especially in villages like Poligny Montrachet where. Um, there's a huge shortage. Uh-huh. Um, that's these relationships that have gone on for years and years and years are very important and play a really big role into the quality of fruit that Louis Jadot gets. Yeah, I would imagine that it's it's fostering that loyalty yeah. for for years and years, and you really want to have that high quality. And it makes it makes the growers want to grow the best fruit they possibly can. So yeah, I love that. that. Yeah, I just think that the whole idea of uh, and that, that was pretty much how it was explained to me, too, was, you know, they, they, they pay the best price very consistently, and they treat them very well, and so it's a real relationship, and that relationship ends up with great grapes. I love that. I, th- I think that's such a neat... And the fact that it's it's essentially supporting the community, you know, this is... You know, it's out in love. But, uh, but anyways, yeah, so um, can we talk a little bit about um, Chateau Jacques? Yes. Um, so... In 1996, Louis Jadot purchased a producer in the Beaujolais area by the name of Chateau de Jacques. And Chateau de Jacques produces only Cru Beaujolais. So there are about 10 villages in in the northern part of Beaujolais that um, have elevated status and the the quality of fruit is better there. So they um, produce these these Cru wines and Chateau de Jacques specializes in about three of those villages. So Moulinavant, Morgan, and Fleury. Um, they don't purchase fruit in, in Beaujolais for any of those uh, any of those bottlings. So everything they do is 100% estate, okay. uh, which is how it was done prior to Louis Jadot purchasing the property. Oh, well, that's great. Yeah. And, uh, and so they don't make any Beaujolais Nouveau? No, they do not do any Beaujolais Nouveau. They do not do any Beaujolais Village. They leave that to Louis Jadot. Uh, uh-huh. Louis Jadot does, obviously, the Beaujolais Village is the number one red French wine in uh-huh. the U.S. Um, but wait, what? Yes, Say that again. It's a, yes. The number one red French wine in the U.S. is Louis Jadot by volume. By volume, yeah. And the counterpart, Macon Village, number one French white wine sold in the U.S. Huh. You got street cred. I, yeah, way yeah. to go. No, no, I, I didn't question. I, I actually was more surprised that that's just to know what French wine we drink the most of. Right. Not even more than Louis Jadot, just to know. Uh, it's amazing that so much Beaujolais Village is purchased. Um, and you see so little of it on wine lists. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what's so, like, and uh, I mean, I like... Well, it makes no sense. I think, I think Cru Beaujolais is phenomenal. Yes. You, you know, that's, that's what I found myself... When we were uh, in Burgundy, so obviously, if anybody doesn't know, Beaujolais is the southern part of Burgundy that's technically part of Burgundy, but not always associated with it. But I felt like Sheila and I drank more of that than we drank uh, Pinot Noir or Chardonnay. It's just nice... To Cru me, uh, Cru Beaujolais is the best value in Burgundy. Right. Um, the wines, they age beautifully. Um, and if you're getting them from a, a, a fantastic producer like Chateau de Jacques, uh, you, can, you can age those wines for 10, 15, 20 years, uh, and they're just going to get better and better. And uh, 
part of that is I, I wanted to mention, you know, um, with Beaujolais Nouveau, they do car carbonic maceration. Mm -hmm. And uh, some producers in Beaujolais do carbonic maceration, but uh, Chateau de Jacques does not do that. So these wines truly um, taste like a wine from Burgundy. And, and so, so carbonic maceration also, in addition to giving it that particular bright fruit profile or whatever, uh, it, uh, it impedes the aging process? It makes it so they're not age-worthy? Yeah, they're not, they're not as age-worthy. They're just a little bit lighter body. Um, just not, they're kind of meant for a instant gratification. Which is why, yeah. <laughs> why you don't drink it a week after it comes out. Exactly. Yeah. Well, fun. All right, so um, we're, we're pretty close to our next stop, but while we're still in France, um, is, there, is there a relationship between Domaine Ferre and Louis Chideau, or is that just another yes. Burgundy property? Okay. Um, so it is, and uh, kind of an interesting relationship as well. But uh, basically, in 2008, um, there was no succession plan. Uh, Madame Ferre uh, had no, no children, and uh, because of the relationship that Louis Chideau had, with the Ferret family, they were able to purchase a winery in 2008, and um, they kept it the same. They hired a female winemaker. A, a woman has made the wines of Domaine Ferret since the beginning. That's great. Um, Domaine Ferret was actually the first winery in Cuyfuse to a state bottle after World War II, um, because like Burgundy um, in Cuyfuse, they did a lot of wines through the co-op. Mm -hmm. uh, co-op process and so Domaine Ferret was really revolutionary in that they estate bottled and um, it's a great property it's about 45 acres in the heart of the Pre-Fusé region and the winemaker Audrey is actually um, married to the winemaker of Chateau de Jacques Cyril Aww. and uh, they didn't meet that way but uh. it just happened to work <laughs> out that way oh, <laughs> so there's definitely a, a tie in there uh -huh. that's, that's great well, that's pretty cool. Well, um, well, awesome. Well, we're about to pull up, but uh, let's continue the conversation after we drink some more wine. All right. All right, we are back in the car again with Erica. Erica, where did we leave off? We were talking about France. We were talking about France. France. Did we get to Tatanjay yet? We did not get to Tatanjay yet. Let's get to Tatanjay. And maybe if you want to talk a little bit about Domaine Carneros in the same breath, oh, yeah. that would be kind of cool. I'll try. Um, so first question about Tatanjay, um, do I just sound pretentious saying it like Tatanjay and not Tatanjur or whatever no. the other versions are? So um, anyone from the winery would say, uh, and I've heard this from multiple people that uh, have worked for the winery, uh -huh. doesn't matter how you say it, as long as you buy as long as you it drink it. and you drink it. <laughs> so Tatanjay is the French pronunci pronunciation. Um, Tattinger would be the American way, or you can also say Tatinger, which is Tatinger. Tatinger, because there is an I in there, and that is very acceptable. Or, uh, yeah, all right, let's, let's go on. Let's actually talk about the wine. <laughs> yes, let's talk about the wine. Okay, um, yeah, so one thing that's uh, that's cool, I've, there are many cool things about Tattinger, but uh, they're one of the last family-owned uh, grand marks of champagne. So the, the, the big champagne houses, there are about 26 of them that, you know, when you think of champagne brands, they are what you would consider a grand mark. Uh -huh. um, they're the last family-owned grand mark in champagne. And uh, so I think that's a really big deal. Um, the family still works every day. Uh, Pierre-Emmanuel Tatanger is the, the father. His two children, Vitaly and uh, Clovis, they um, you know, work at the winery as well. That's one cool thing. Mm -hmm. um, another one would be that they also own a ton of land. They're actually mm. the third largest landowner in Champagne. Um, first and second would be Moet Hennessy, or <laughs> Moet, Moet <laughs> Chandon, excuse uh, me, uh -huh. and uh, Vuvli Co. But when you look at the um, the vineyard acres owned to production, uh -huh. Tatanjay produces about about over half, 50, I'd say fifty to sixty percent of what they um, they grow, fifty to sixty percent of what they produce. So it's a really big deal. Like mm -hmm. 
and they're actually not that big um, even though they're a heritage brand everybody knows the champagne house um, they're actually pretty small they make they would say they make around 700 to 800,000 cases a year which for champagne that's is that is that of every skew put together that's all the all the champagne wow yes so when you think about something uh, like Dom Perignon which has amazing cachet and is a fantastic wine they make about 350,000 cases of wow. Dom Perignon and that is um, a lot of wine at a high dollar um, so when you put it in terms like that, Tenmije is pretty small. Um, can you, I don't know if this applies here, um, Tete de Cuvée. Yes. What is that? Tete de Cuvée, that is the kind of flagship of the house. So what would Tetenje's Tete de Cuvée be? That is their Comte de Champagne. Comte de Champagne. Comte de Champagne was the first Blanc de Blanc ever produced. And uh, 1952 was the first vintage of Comte de Champagne. Um, before that, uh, nobody really thought about doing 100% Chardonnay sparkling wine, um, but uh, they decided to do that, and it's been very successful. That's crazy. Yeah. How, uh, do they make that in every vintage, or is that? No, it's not every vintage, but in part of <laughs> to global warming there oh. um, have been uh, more successful vintages in champagne um, over the past few years so yeah they've they've over in recent years they have made a tete de cuvee every year um, but so is global warming affecting them positively for Are now they the one region that for yeah. now but um, you know that's gonna in these areas like champagne the pendulum will swing very quickly uh -huh. the other way and actually there are to my knowledge the first sparkling producer uh, or champagne house that has invested in uh, land in England mm -hmm. and they've planted vines in Kent um, because the soils are very similar to wait wait who, who has Tatanjay Tatanjay mm -hmm. is in England yeah they just they purchased some um, some vineyard or some land that was apple orchards uh -huh. uh, because the land in Kent has chalky soil just like champagne so historically it's been too cool in England to grow grapes but with global warming it's becoming a reality and they hope to have um, you know kind of a backup plan if things get too too warm in champagne they're actually from what I've from what I understand they, uh, producers in Champagne are experimenting with other varietals too that might be more um, heat tolerant. So it is hmm. kind of an issue. Yeah, that is interesting. Well, I mean, one of the things that you prize so much about Champagne is the acid. The acid, you right? Know, so yeah, exactly. It seems like if you're losing that, that's a big well, deal. What's the point? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's very interesting. Well, okay, so um, speaking of branching out beyond Champagne, mm -hmm. how, uh, how did Carneros oh, yeah. come into the picture. Great segue. Uh, so Thank you. <laughs> back in, in 1987, um, Domaine Carneros was founded as a joint partnership between Tatanjay and Cobrand. And they, um, Tatanjay found Eileen Crane, who was making sparkling wine for Chandon okay. at the time. And uh, they brought her on and kind of gave her carte blanche to build a winery the way she wanted it built and she did so and has, she's actually now the longest tenured sparkling winemaker in the U.S. That's and, amazing. Um, yeah, she's an incredible woman and makes just phenomenal wines and yeah, it just kind of started out as a, as a small project and, and Domaine Carneros is still pretty small. Um, they only do estate sparkling wines. They don't purchase any fruit for their um, for their wines. And even though it's a very recognizable, everybody knows the chateau. Everybody that's been to Napa and Sonoma, it's like that's where you stop, exactly. get brunch or something. Exactly, yeah. it's one of the first things you see. You see this like grand chateau that's a replica of uh, Tatanjay's uh, chateau in Epernay. Mm -hmm. And um, but even though it's like. They welcome about 100,000 visitors a year to Domaine Carneros. It's actually um, the second smallest um, sparkling 
house in California. So Iron Horse would be the smallest one that's nationally distributed. Right. Um, so, you know, it's still kind of a small brand, even though it's very recognizable. What, um, uh, you, you, uh, um, I can't think of a good way to ask the question. So Domaine Carneros also makes still wines. Yes. And uh, what's the idea behind that? You're already growing the grapes. Yeah, I mean, you know. Um, is it just Pinot? Is there a Chard? It is just Pinot that is distributed um, nationally okay. at the winery. They do a lot of cool things uh-huh. that I don't even know about um, <laughs> but for their wine club members. Um, but I, I think that's kind of how the Pinot Noir started out. It started out as something fun for the wine club um, back in the early 90s. And it kind of went from there. Uh, because obviously Carneros is a great place for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay still wine. Um, they decided to kind of do that. But their, their national focus for still wine is just Pinot Noir. Hmm. Well, that's very cool. It's delicious stuff. It's very good. Yeah, yeah they have a dedicated winemaker, uh, TJ Evans, who makes the still wines for Domaine Carneros. And we got to sort of meet him recently. Yes. Over the TV. He was a very cool guy. Yeah, Skype guy. We did. Skype guy. That's how I remember him. Um, all right. Well, we're about to pull up to our next account. Okay. I do want to mention something to the listeners because I'm not going to ask Erica to go into this, but in the conversation of uh, reaching across the pond um, with Tatajay, um, Louis Jadot has done the same thing um, with the Resonance um, Project in Willamette Valley, Oregon. But I am actually, if everything works out well, going to meet the winemaker in a couple weeks out there, and I'll let him tell the story, and we'll we'll save your time for something different <laughs> that I'm not about to get. But uh, but let's pop out of the car, and we'll we'll jump back in in a second. All right. All right, back in the car again. Um, so uh, for the next question, before we move on with what we're talking about, um, I have a uh, listener who sent in a question. Um, so let's listen to it in a segment that I like to call Shibuya, Shibuya, Shibuya mail call. Hey, this is Hannah. My question for you is what do you view as the challenges and benefits of managing a diverse portfolio as opposed to a more localized portfolio? For example, one that focuses solely on Burgundy or Napa. Uh, the challenge would be that sometimes you don't get an opportunity to know a region deeper than kind of a surface knowledge. Right. You know, like uh, I would love to be a specialist in just Italy or just France or even just Burgundy. Um, so that can be a challenge because you have I'm a sure. lot of yeah. things to, to learn about. Yeah. So I can't um, imagine the number. Especially, I love that I'm going to continue just putting you on the spot about wineries and asking yes. all these things and yeah. how, how much knowledge you have, which is crazy, just <laughs> of wineries alone, not to mention speaking about regions and yes. everything. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, you get to learn, you you know, just ma- trying to master the number of wineries and knowing all the little fun uh-huh. facts and details about each winery, that's a big task in itself, but let alone knowing competitive producers and this, that, and the other. Yeah. can be a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. A fun one, but yeah. Yes. Well, that uh, well, that's actually a, kind of a good segue um, because we, we're probably only going to get one more of these before we're done, and I want to go to Italy there mm-hmm. um, because you have such an awesome Italian book. Um, but speaking of s- huge books, mm-hmm. um, can we talk a little bit about port? Because that's something that you have that a lot of yes. my suppliers don't have in their book. Yes. Uh, so we represent the Taylor Flaggate Partnership, which comprises of uh, Taylor Flaggate, Fonseca, Croft, and Crone, which is new to the portfolio. Um, and uh, yeah, they're probably three of the most well-known port houses. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is what we represent. And port is always a fun one. I think fortified wines in general are a lot of fun. I like to drink them. I love um, ports and Madeiras and uh you know all kinds of sweet wines. Do you do you um, do you do well with them? Yes. I'm, I'm wondering about the trends of port. So the port is an interesting one. Um, some some places do better than others. Uh, I'm based out of Georgia, and in Georgia, our port numbers have grown double digits um, year after year. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't know what people are doing with port, right. but they just keep drinking more and more well, and that's more great. of it. So that's exciting. Um, but yeah, it kind of depends. I think some, you know, on premise, it, it can be a bit of a challenge sometimes uh-huh. um, because with port um, on premise, you really have to have a commitment to a port program. You have I to put it on a so, wine yeah. list. You know, um, we are trying. There's a big focus for us to encourage port cocktails. Well, that's good. Um, it's nice. Just, I yeah, can see that. yeah. Just to kind of because port does get really pigeonholed uh-huh. into people thinking that it's for dessert only, and oh, it, it needs to be in a white tablecloth restaurant. Uh, this, that, and the other. So um, we're trying to get people to think outside the box when they I like think about that. port. Yeah, well, that's great. There are the are there um, port cocktails with tawny as well as ruby port? Yes. Is there one that does more? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they both have applications uh, for ruby cocktail, ruby <laughs> port cocktails. <laughs> uh, we use. Uh, we typically suggest Fonseca Ben Twenty Seven. And then for tawny port cocktails, uh, a few years ago, Croft developed what they call Croft Tawny Reserve, Mm -hmm. which is in a really cool kind of like bourbon style bottle. And um, it's at a price point that you can mix it in cocktails and it's not going to, you know, it's not going to be like a waste of of money or quality. Um, It's age seven years, so Mm -hmm. it's not quite a 10 year, but but yeah, they, they both make great cocktails. Awesome. Yes. Well, cool. Well, let's sign off and we'll sign back on in just one more second. Okay. All right. And finally, and I have to say this is sadly probably being the last segment before Miss Erica leaves me, but uh, let's talk about Italy. Let's. Let's. You have so many awesome wineries there. I'm going to throw a couple of them at you. You probably don't have time to do all of them, Um, but how about Mozzie? You start in Veneto. Yes, yes. So, um, so Mozzie is our producer from the Veneto, and uh, they are world-class Amarone producer. Um, one thing that I think is is really interesting about the winery is that they've experimented all over the world with the Apostamento method, uh-huh. um, in different regions and with different varietals. Um, so, I think that that's interesting because they've they've practiced or they've tried a passamento on cabernet and washington and um you know all all different types of grapes all over the world and who, who is they mozzie has mozzie has okay. yes yeah because i know they have the tupin they do yes. right? yeah okay yeah. and that's kind of one of the reasons why they have tupin gato was that they found that um one uh, that the that corvina would go through the apostamento process pretty well in Argentina like the climate the the um humidity or I guess the lack of humidity was beneficial Uh they have uh at the winery they have like a little mini lake garda to kind of help uh uh, moderate the the temperatures there but um but yeah Tupangata is such a cool little uh project that they do um and for the listeners that is a Malbec Corvina blend yeah, out of Argentina that Mozzie does. That is a Passamento style. That is a Passamento, yes. Okay. They, the, the Malbec is not, but the Corvina is. Interesting. Yeah, so they blend in some Passamento uh, Corvina. So just in case anybody's listening has mm-hmm. no idea what a Passamento is. Everybody should know what that is. Okay, well, no, then I'm just never kidding. <laughs> yeah. So a Passamento is the process um, where uh, grapes are picked uh, whole cluster grapes and they are put on bamboo racks and they are put in drying lofts that uh, for a specific period of time uh, for Amarone production uh, they're going to spend about three months in these drying lofts and um, uh, then the the purpose is not to, to dry the grapes it's just to lose a little bit of the water weight uh-huh. so the grapes um, they don't look like raisins when they're done they look kind of like golf balls so just like little dimples okay. um, on the grapes they lose about 30% of their weight uh, for Amarone production in this process and um, basically what it does is it, it concentrates the fruit flavors it raises the alcohol because truly Valpolicella, uh, which is the, the wine of the region, uh, is a pretty simple wine. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's kind of like, a, to an earlier segment, kind of like Beaujolais. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of people compare the two as being pretty similar. 
Um, and so in order to make something that's more complex, the drying process came into to play. Okay. And um, uh, in the same conversation, does Mozzie do Reggioto or... They do, yes, they do. Yeah. Is and that a is that a big mover anymore for them? Um, no. Okay. Not really, and um, I don't hear much about Reggie yet. Yeah. No, I I think you know it's kind of one of those things that maybe it'll have a resurgence uh-huh. <laughs> uh, one day, but yeah, everybody goes for Amarone, the Reggiotto, not so much, but it's uh, they do it because it is traditional of the region for sure. Do you want to take a second and talk about Super Venetian? Yeah, Is let's that a do that. Term? Yeah, let's talk about so that. So Mozzie, um, in addition to being a, a fantastic Amarone producer, they also um, were the first producer to release a commercially produced Rapasso. And that was Campo Furine, and that was in 1964. And um, they actually had trademarked the term Rapasso. Um, but... Back in 1995, they decided to, one, kind of abandon the process, mm-hmm. and two, um, kind of just do something different. So that's where the Super Venetian came from. So Campo Furine now is no longer a Rapasso. Um, it is now produced in a method which they call double fermentation, Okay. which kind of sounds like a crazy process. But basically, what a Rapasso is, is a Rapasso is... Um, a portion of regularly fermented wine that skins from your Amarone production of, that have been pressed from the Amarone production are thrown in to the the wine to create a secondary fermentation. Okay. Right. So that was traditional Rapasso process, and the that process kind of elevated it. It made the Valpolicella a little more complex. Mm-hmm. So that was the purpose. Um, but what double fermentation is, what Mozzie does with Campofurine, is they take, instead of taking um, the skins left over from Amarone production, they actually take whole clusters of fruit that would be destined for Amarone production. Mm-hmm. Um, they, these, these clusters, the whole clusters are thrown in to uh, initiate a secondary fermentation. So, so you make one fermentation out of fresh grapes. Yes. And then you kickstart it again with raft or dried grapes yes. that haven't been used for anything exactly yet. yeah and so the um kind of what how they explain it is um the Rapasso method is like using a tea bag twice to make a cup of tea mm-hmm. uh and Rapasso or uh, double fermentation is like using a fresh tea bag so it's going to be a smoother yeah. it's going to be um you know a, a little bit smoother flavor profile so Rapasso's can be a little it can be a little harsh. Is the is the alcohol a little higher because um, the it, sugar content in the? It's not much. It's about the same yeah, as, okay. a, as a, a superiore. It's going to be mm-hmm. a little bit higher because of the secondary fermentation, mm-hmm. but not not, not more so than right. exactly yet. Very interesting. Yes. Um, let's let's move on. Let's okay. Talk about another Italian winery. Yeah. Um, 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 um. Do you want to go to Tuscany? Let's go to Tuscany. You want to? Ooh, let's talk about the. Yeah, we're gone from Super Venetian. To you want to talk about Super Tuscan? Super Tuscan, yeah. So we uh, are fortunate enough to represent uh, Tenuta Sanguido, which is the winery that makes Sassacaya. Which is awesome. Which is awesome, which is the first, you know, Super Tuscan, basically. Mm-hmm. It's the only winery in Italy that has its own DOC. Uh, which is DOC Bulgari Sasakaya, which is a, a big deal. Which is crazy. Yeah. yeah. And Sasakaya is um, is always going to be Cabernet and Cab Franc blended, mm-hmm. uh, which back in the 60s was very revolutionary and unheard of um, at the time because the area where um, where the winery is was, was in Tuscany. So obviously Sangiovese was the, the grape of the region. And um, for many, many years, uh, Sasakaya can only be labeled as red table wine because mm-hmm. it did not fall within the uh, laws of production. So um, that was kind of where the, the term Super Tuscan came from, uh, was these wines that were uh, world-class wines, but couldn't yeah. really fall into any one thing. So, But Sasakaya has then now transcended in getting their own DOC. Yeah. So. Well, and they probably, they were... Um, they were the catalyst for IGT Bulgari too, right? Yes. And I then, so, yeah. yeah, and so they did that. And then they 
hit it up another level. The Italian government trying to keep up with exactly. Sasakai or something. They're leveling up. Yeah, it's all awesome. The time. Yeah. Well, you know, it would be really interesting though, because um, I feel like most people know about Sasakai. Can you talk about the other two uh, skews that Tuna Sanguida makes? Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, back in the early 2000s, so 2001. I believe was the first vintage of Guidalberto, mm-hmm. which Guidalberto is a, a personal favorite of mine, um, which is basically their second wine because real world problems call for real world solutions. Like what <laughs> kind of wine are you going to drink while you're waiting for your Sasakaya? For your Sasakaya, yeah. You know, you got to wait, you know, years and years for Sasakaya to be ready to drink. So uh, they developed... Uh, Guidalberto, which mm-hmm. is a different blend than Sasakaya. It's Cabernet and Merlot, um, but it's f- absolutely fantastic. And uh, Guidalberto is named after the, the founder's grandfather. And uh, I highly oh, recommend nice. it. Okay. Highly recommend it. Guidalberto can age too, but it doesn't have to. Is it the same, like three quarters? Is it like 75, 25 Cab to Merlot? Uh, no, 60, 40. 60, 40? Um, okay. Yeah, 60, 40. And, uh, and then they also do a wine called... Le Defese, which is um, a Cabernet Sangiovese blend. It's the only wine that, that Tunis de Sanguido does that has Sangiovese in it. Mm-hmm. And Le Defese was actually, it was more developed for the Italian market. Uh-huh. Um, and I guess we just wanted to import it get here because it. it was good. Yeah, it was good. So we get a little bit of Le Defese. Um, and it's kind of just their third wine that they've been doing. Uh, we've been importing it for about almost 10 years now. So what is the dog on the label? So the dog, uh, there's a great story there. Um, so in in Bulgari, there are wild boar like all over the place. Mm-hmm. They're a huge nuisance. And um, they tear up the vineyards. Uh, they kind of like, re- they will wreak havoc mm-hmm. um, because they like fruit too. <laughs> so... Um, and uh, you know a lot of a lot of people hunt the boar mm-hmm. in, in the region, um, but one day some boar were kind of tearing through the vineyard, so the story goes. Uh-huh. And instead of going out with the guns, they decided to uh, release the hounds. Uh-huh. And uh, apparently the dogs chased off the the boar. And on the label, it's got a boar with the two dogs and. Um, La Defese means the defense. Oh, okay. So the, the dogs were kind of the defense of the the winery. Well, that's great. I've never actually fruit. known that. Oh, yeah. The fruit, yeah. Yeah. Both. The protectors. So, um, Tenuta Viserno is our other one of our other wineries uh, that we represent, and it's a, a close neighbor to Tenuta Sanguido. And uh, Viserno, I think, is a, a really interesting winery. It's uh, Lodovico Antonori. Started it back in 2002, and um, basically after he divested in um, in the Antonori or in um, Ornelia, mm-hmm. uh, he decided to kind of do his own thing, start over. Um, for many years, he had not had a relationship with his brother um, Piero, mm-hmm. uh, but they got back together. They they made up after about 25 oh, years. Nice <laughs> and. Uh, they they started doing uh, Tenuta Biserno, and so Tenuta Biserno is in a little town called Bibona, and you can actually see the carvings. Uh, so at, at Sasakaya, there is a, a carving into the rock of uh-huh. the crest, uh, which is actually an interesting story that maybe I'll tell it another time <laughs> that I should have probably told. Um, <laughs> Uh, you can go into it. <laughs> I'll, I'll go into it right now. Yeah, I totally, I forgot. And it's something that I don't, I don't, we don't talk about the story that much, but um, uh, somebody just told it recently. So uh, basically, um, so Mario Anchisa was not a native Tuscan. Um, he was, um, so he was not necessarily super welcome mm-hmm. uh, because the Tuscan people are Italy Close really knit, yeah. is very fragmented. Regional, it's very yeah. regional. And um, the story goes that he um, basically had his family crest put into like carved into stone. Uh-huh. So that way, when the people were flying over his place, they would see that. An outsider huh. had like made that's their great. home there. Yeah, uh-huh. it's like a total baller move. Yeah, that's uh, it's pretty awesome. So, um, 
<laughs> yeah, so you can see the carving. Uh -huh. You can see the carving from um, from Becerno. And uh, so what Becerno does, it's a little bit different, is they have um, their first wine was um, Insolio de Cingale, mm -hmm. and that was a, a Syrah-based wine, which is kind of unique for the area. Um, it's got like Syrah, Merlot, Cabernet, Cap Franc. And then they also do a wine called Il Pino, and uh, Tenuta di Becerno de Becerno is their other wine that's uh, kind of their flagship. And um, the wines are phenomenal. They're totally different in style than mm -hmm. um, Tenuta Sanguido. Mm -hmm. Tenuta Sanguido is like very elegant, you know, um, and just Tenuta Sanguido is also the first producer to harvest in the area. Uh -huh. uh, and Becerno is just totally different style. They're more powerful. Like, you know, anybody that loves, um, you know, New World wines, mm -hmm. they're going to love the, the Becerno yeah. wines. And they are so good. And, like, when you open the bottle, you don't have to decan it. You don't have to do anything. They're just, they're so good. And they're uh, they're just ready to go right there. But they're 100% estate um, and just really good. And I feel like that... You don't see them out there that much, and we're trying to change that. I feel like I kind of want to have a glass yeah. right now. What a great I, let's, descriptor. Let's go yeah, find some Becerno yeah, right no, now. We, but yeah, we fantastic. We should have some of that in the bag. Yeah, exactly. What, what, what were we thinking? <sighs> um, too many wines. Too many wines on the dance floor. Yeah. Um, Matilda? Yeah, let me talk about Villa Matilda about, for a second. Because this is well, a new one to me. I'm, it, it is, I enjoyed having an, the Falangina today. Yeah, it's a new one for us as well. Um, we uh, started representing them earlier this year. And um, the wines are really fantastic. They're um, out of Campania. And they do a really great Falangina, a Greco de Tufo, an Alianico, and Tarazzi. All from their estate. And um, just like all of our other wineries, they're family-owned mm -hmm. and operated now uh, on their second generation, uh, running the property. And um, they're very, uh, very environmentally focused. Okay. They're they're nice. not organic. They're not certified organic, but they do um, have a pretty. Um, they're very sustainable in their farming practices and their winery. Everything's like very, you know gravity fed this that and the other right. so very um good stewards to the land that's nice uh but yeah the wines are awesome because the, the region of campania there's um all this volcanic soil so all the wines have this really great minerality uh the whites are so great and refreshing the reds are great food wines because they've got a lot of structure mm -hmm. um they're they're all really good. That we're very excited to have Villa Matilde in, in the portfolio. I'm excited to drink more of it. I the Falangina was great. Yeah, I, the I want to try the Alianico. So yes. Do we yeah. have that? Yes. Do I have that? Oh, you do have that. It's yeah. exciting. It is I'll here. It is here. Yeah. Um. Okay. Before this last little segment, a quick disclaimer. If you are opposed to profanity, maybe skip to the end. What you are about to hear are a lot of dirty words. So after a day of butchering the name of the winery we're about to talk about, and a day of Erica telling me how it's actually supposed to be pronounced, I still said it wrong. Several times. So, yeah. Enjoy. And then, yeah. lastly... Now we gotta finish up with... Finish up with something <laughs> so, new. So, wait. Alright, so I have to talk about this first. So, uh, so, Erica and I have a shared love of a particular Italian wine that has been poo-pooed on for a long time, and it is our joint goal in life to bring this bad boy back so with that please tell me about the medici 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 <laughs> i'm a bitch <laughs> damn it we worked so hard there was the cheeto uh, the zoo the, the, medici Medi what did i say medici medici <laughs> So we've been working so hard. So uh, I'm going to edit all that shit out. I might not. I might leave it in there. Fuck. Yeah, it um, is great. Uh, let's talk about the Medici. Medici. Winery. Yes. Um, so the, the winery has been around for 120 years. They have now welcomed now their fifth generation into the fold. Um, wow. Alessandro is now working at the winery. He is... Um, kind of handling some of the, the markets in Asia, and um, he makes so some trips to the So it's his great-great-grandfather was the person who 
You say he so Alessandra's the fifth, I think. Alessandra's the fifth, yeah. Oh, uh, their grandfather, great, great grandfather, yeah. great great grandfather. Wow. Yeah. Okay, sorry, keep going. Yeah. Um, and uh, really, I can't say enough good things about the the, the winery uh, and the people. Um, everything that they do is also 100% estate. They don't purchase any fruit. Um, do you know that we haven't actually said what the wine is yet? Oh! We haven't dropped the L word yet. We haven't dropped the L word. We want to bring back Lambrusco. Lambrusco. <laughs> and this is a Lambrusco producer, big time. Yes, yeah, big sorry. time. <laughs> big time. Quality producer. Um, Lambrusco got a bad name back in the 80s. I mean, honestly, like we talked about Beaujolais Nouveau. Um, same kind of thing, you know, a Chianti to a certain yeah, extent. Yeah. Things that made something popular also created the demise the, exactly, of yeah. the category. And um, it's unfortunate because, um, you know, Lambrusco, Lambrusco to me is the ultimate food wine. And mm -hmm. when you go to um, uh, Emilia Romagna, it is the the epicenter for, for all things culinary in Italy. I mean, you think about Italy as like such a great country for food in general but um Emilia Romagna that's where it's at like that is just it's like the bread basket of of Italy um and cheeses uh -huh. and pork are really important there and um Lambrusco goes fantastic with anything that's got salt or fat which are my Not only two food everything groups. yeah it's everything yeah <laughs> Um, and it's great because it's refreshing and it's fizzy and Lambrusco can range from dry to sweet. Um, and, but they're all good and they all have their, um, they all have their own application. So what we import from Medici is, uh, four, did I even say it right? No, you said I? it perfect. Sorry. Ah. <laughs> uh. we, we import four, four wines from, uh, from the winery. Out. I was gonna say it. Oh, you just skipped over it. Medici. <laughs> From the Medici. Medici. Um, so we, tell me about the four wines you import from Medici. Yes. So we have uh, two wines which are called uh, Quercioli, and that's their entry level. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a dry and a sweet. And even though the sweet has 50 grams of residual sugar, which is equivalent to uh, Moscato. Uh-huh. It doesn't seem like it. No, yeah. the acid in the fruit is so high that it balances out all the sugar. And uh, honestly, as much as I don't like sweet wine, unless it's fortified, of course, um, <laughs> I love their their sweet Lambrusco because it just, with, a, with pizza or a burger, it's just fantastic. Um, all right, so we talked about the Corsioli wines. We did. They we import two other ones. One is called Solo, mm -hmm. which is kind of a cool one. It's um, a blend of a grape called Ancelotta, which is technically a blending grape, mm -hmm. uh, and um, one of the Lambrusco varietals. So that one's kind of cool. It's in a kind of a funky shaped bottle. But then my favorite is Concerto, which is their flagship. It's a hundred percent Salamino, which is um, a, one of the six permitted varieties of Lambrusco grapes to be used in production. Mm -hmm. um, it is the first single vineyard, first vintage dated Lambrusco ever produced. 1992 was the year that they first made Concerto. That's awesome. And I think a lot of people told Alberto that he was crazy for wanting to do this. Um, and Alberto is generation four, Alessandro's Al father. Yes, okay. yes he is. And Concerto is actually the only Lambrusco to be awarded the Trebicieri Award. And it's received that is Trebicieri awesome. nine times. And just like a Tete de Cuvée, uh -huh. uh, Concerto is not produced every year. So okay. only, in, only in really good vintage years do they make Concerto. And, um, am I, am I mistaken that there's some sort of a connection with Pavarotti? Yes. You're, I no, am mistaken. No, you're not mistaken. No, sorry. You're not mistaken. No, no, no. It's, uh, yeah, I'm not very cultured, but I do know that, um, the opera is very important to the region. Oh, okay. And, yes. but the, does the word concerto, uh, is it an allusion to, cause concerto is music and solo yes. sounds like it's music. Solo I mean, it could be anything, is, yes. you know? Yeah. Yeah, solo is um, 
it, there is a tie to music. Yeah. But I'm not cultured enough to that's, know. That's fantastic. To, or to remember why exactly. <laughs> we will get back to you on that one. Yes. Um, um, well, one thing that's kind of cool about the, the area um, is that, uh, so the winery is located in Reggio Emilia. And maybe about 30 minutes away is Modena. Mm-hmm. which is obviously really well known for um, balsamic vinegar. Mm-hmm. But also that is where um, Lamborghini and Ferrari and Maserati hmm. and Ducati are all produced. Wow. Yeah. Fun fact. That is a fun fact. It's more than just a wine region. It's still just wine to me. Yeah. I can't afford the other things. No, I can't either. <laughs> well. If we sell enough Lambrusco, we can though. That's so... I've had an amazing day with you in the car with me. Thank you. If my listeners take nothing more away from this podcast, then go get some Medici Lambrusco. It is delicious. It's honestly, I think uh, the first time that I was in Italy, um, Sheila and I sat down to lunch the first time that we had lunch and we got a pitcher of Lambrusco and it was just, we don't even think about it. It's just the perfect lunch wine. It's It's not a bad breakfast wine. Uh, it's, it's the just, best wine all the time. Yeah, I love it. You don't need an excuse to drink it. You just drink it. Hashtag bring back Lambrusco. Hashtag yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Erica. All well, right. um, thank you, Mike. <laughs> th- thank you so much for spending the day with me. Uh, and let's go uh, drink some Tatanje. Yes, let's do it. Thank you. Told you that was going to be an action-packed episode. Thanks so much to my guest, Erica Taylor, and to all of you for listening. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share, and subscribe, and tell your friends. Also, as I mentioned last week, I will be headed to Willamette Valley, Oregon next week. If all goes according to plan, I will be interviewing David Adelsheim, Rob Stewart, Jay McDonald, Justin King, maybe a few others. If you have any questions you'd like to ask them for my mail call segment, please send them quickly. Go to anchor.fm to send voice questions. Finally, tune in next week when I interview Sean Roney, winemaker of Sabotage, and just a cool fellow. Until then, chin chin. Cheers!